1 Samuel chapter 3 is the text that we are going to be looking at this morning. We are in a series that we're calling Encounters with God. Encounters with God, stories of grace overcoming guilt. And I've chosen this as a series because I think it will help us understand what it means when God confronts individual human beings in all their messy circumstances of life. What it means for God to speak to you. God has given us his full and final revelation in the scripture, the Bible, and the Bible reveals Jesus Christ, and no one can have a true encounter with God unless he or she has an encounter with God through Jesus Christ. This is how we have an encounter with God. But in each of these scenarios that we're going to be looking at, there's, there's common themes. And, and the one common theme is the thing that we've emphasized over and over again, and that is every time someone responds to God, it's always a story of God's grace overcoming their guilt. And my burden for this series is that these stories of grace overcoming guilt through these encounters of God would be your story as well, that you would experience the presence of God in your life, that you would know God speaking to you. And so in light of that, let's all pray together and ask the Lord to speak to us this morning. Let's pray. Father, creator, all-powerful one, self-sustaining, all-sufficient, without beginning, without end, without limit, Yet you who have chosen to speak to us, meet with us, I pray. Our hearts are so noisy. Please silence them. Our wills are so stubborn. Please melt them. Our ways are so wandering. Please straighten them. Give us ears to hear and hearts to receive and wills to do and exalt Jesus Christ among us. And I pray that we would know that you have met with us this morning. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Several years ago, a young man came to my office for counsel. He was a troubled guy. A car accident had left his arm weak and not very useful to him. His speech was slurred. He couldn't talk right. He was getting D's and F's instead of A's and B's in school. He couldn't find a date, so he would go to soccer games by himself. And in all his discouragement and loneliness, this young man came to me with a question. He didn't want to know necessarily how to find a girlfriend or how to raise his grades, his question was this, why doesn't God speak to me? Why doesn't God give me words audibly that I could hear so that in my weakness and in my frustration and in my loneliness, I know what's going on? I wonder if you've asked a similar question. Right now, with all that's going on in your life, why doesn't God just speak to you and tell you about it, assure you of his love and care for you, maybe even that he's really here, really real at all? The passage that we've turned to 
tells us at the very beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 3 that the word of the Lord was rare. A word from God was rare. Can you imagine what it would be to live in a world in which there was no word from God at all? There's no indication of what's going on in the world. It'd be like a, a creepy museum with all kinds of artifacts but no explanation. Like a book with pictures but no words. Like someone laughing or crying but with, for no apparent reason would be a universe that doesn't have the speaking voice of God in it. This is a frightening thing to, to read and realize that the word of the Lord was rare, uncommon. There was no frequent vision. And we need a word from God. We need God to speak to us. Why does it seem like God is silent? See, the question that is raised in verse 1 of 1 Samuel 3 is the background of the story about Samuel and how that God really does speak to Samuel. God really does reveal himself to this young boy who was a servant in the temple at that time. And let me give you just some background for those of you who may be unfamiliar with the life of Samuel. Samuel was a miracle baby. The way it worked out was an unpleasant and interesting situation. Uh, his mother could not have children for a long time. His mother, Samuel's mother, was married to a man who had another wife. And what made this even worse, what made her barrenness even worse, is that the other wife had many children and would deliberately mock and antagonize Samuel's mother, Hannah, for her infertility. And Hannah's life was miserable because of this, and she would go to the temple and pray, and she'd beg the Lord to give her a son. And at one point in the temple, she prayed, and she said, Lord, if you give me a son, I promise I will dedicate him to you. The high priest at that time, or the, the head priest at that time, Eli, saw her praying and asked her what was going on, and she told him, and he, apparently having had a word of God from him, himself, told her God was going to give her a son. She had the son, named him Samuel, which means heard by God, and Samuel, true to her word, was given to God to serve in the temple. That's the background of the life of Samuel, this boy that God speaks to in this chapter that we read about. And we'll look at this story in three parts, focusing on the major characters in this story. And here are the three parts, and this is the, the structure of this sermon, so you know where I'm going. The first part is Eli's sons. Hophni and Phinehas. The second part is Eli himself. And the third part is Samuel. So Eli's sons, Eli himself, and Samuel. And each of these parts, focusing on these characters, will tell us something about why it is that the word of the Lord was rare in those days and help answer the question that you may struggle with and that may be a challenge for you. Why doesn't God, in my loneliness, in my challenges, in my frustration or confusion, why doesn't God speak to me? We begin with looking at Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. You notice that if you flip back a chapter to chapter 2 and look at verse 12, the narrator of the book of Samuel, without flinching, without apology, says that the sons of Eli were worthless men. They can hardly be called even the, the villains of the story. They're more like the scoundrels of the story. And their behavior that we, we read about here in this story was unsavory, to say the least. To begin with, they were supposed to be the priests of God. 
They were supposed to be the men that help people connect with God by accepting their sacrifices and carrying out the rituals in a very detailed way so that people's consciences could be cleansed. This was their role in the tabernacle, in the temple. People would come and they'd bring their sacrifices. People had, had sinned and they realized they had sinned, so they'd come with, with a goat or with a lamb or, or with, with a, a cow and they'd, they'd sacrifice it to the Lord. And these sons of Eli were supposed to officiate and administrate all this. But instead, what they were doing is they were, they were stripping away the best part of the sacrifices for themselves. And we read about this in chapter 2. They were supposed to do certain things with the, with the animals. They were supposed to burn and offer certain parts of it to the Lord, and instead they would send their servant out and they'd say, go grab that meat for us. And they would just be feeding their own selves. That was one thing they would do. A place that was supposed to be a place of offering to the Lord became a place of theft and robbery for the sons of Levi, uh, Eli. But, but even more unsavory and even worse than this, they were sleeping with some women that would come and serve in the tabernacle as well. A place where consciences were supposed to be cleansed, a place that was supposed to be a place of purity, a place that would be supposed to be a place of connection with God, holy, almighty, became a place of defilement because of these two sons of Eli. What made this worse was that this practice imitated the temple prostitution that would happen in the culture around them. This was not an unusual thing to take place. Besides breaking God's law for sexual behavior, this was an overt imitation of the pagan practices that were happening around them. And so what a horrible stench they raised. And here is the narrator's assessment in verse 17. If you look at chapter 2 and verse 17 of what was going on He says, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. In other words, what the Lord wanted in their minds, what, what they wanted was massive and important, and what the Lord wanted was so small, so contemptible, so insignificant. They said, we're going to do what we want to do. And that's what's happened. That's, that's the, the sons of Eli. So how does it relate to the original question Going back to the story I began with about this young man that's coming to me and asking me, why doesn't God speak to me? When it comes to your question and in your struggles, why doesn't God speak to me? Here's the reality. God did speak to the sons of Eli. They had the Word of God. They had the law of God. They knew what God wanted them to do. And furthermore, their father Eli came to them and told them, what you're doing is not good. In, verse, in chapter 2, and verse 22, we read that Eli hears about what his sons were doing and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of the meeting, and he said to them, why are you doing such things? And not only did they have the law of God that their consciences should have been bound to, but in addition, they had their own father speaking the word of God and applying it right to the circumstances of their lives and saying, boys, this is absolutely wrong. You shouldn't be doing this. The problem with Eli's sons is not that they did not have the Word of God, is that they didn't listen to the Word of God. But no wonder that the chapter 3, verse, verse 1, opens with saying the, Lord, the Word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. Well, it's like these guys are plugging their ears and not listening to the Word of God. They have this, this willful defiance against the Word of God. They treated the Lord and His offering with contempt it says they would not listen to the words 
of their father. In verse 25, they would not listen. Now, what was their problem? Their problem was not deafness. It was defiance. It was that they were defying the law of God. And Scripture, my friends, is full of warnings about being deaf or being willfully defiant toward the Word of God. We read this in Proverbs chapter 21 and 29 and verse 1, He who is often reproved yet stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken beyond healing. We find this sobering word in Scripture in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 15, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Throughout the Bible, we have this indication that there is a limited time span within which God is willing to speak the truth to people, and there is a deadline for that. And people who constantly harden their hearts and, and, and make their will stubborn and defy the Word of God are in great danger of coming to a point where they will no longer listen, where they have so hardened their wills. We find this most sobering part of verse 25. It says, For it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. To return to our original question, it is not that the Lord is not speaking to you. The problem is not with His voice, but it's with our ears. God is not silent. This universe is charged with the grandeur of God. From every buzzing beetle at night, to the roar of the waterfalls of the Niagara, Niagara, shouting the existence of God, from the twinkling of the distant stars, even to the pounding of your own heart in your chest, it's all saying there is a God. He's real, and He made you. You're accountable to Him. God's not silent. This universe is exploding with the voice of God, as the psalmist says in chapter 9, Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the skies are praising and singing out the work of His hands night to night, pours forth speech, and day to day pours out knowledge. There is no place where the knowledge about God is, is hid. God is speaking. It is not that the voice of God is silent. It is that people have covered their ears. I find it very interesting to read the words of, of former atheists and to read what they have to say about their experience of coming to faith in, in, in God, actually to believe that there is a God. There is one, Antony Flew, and while he did not actually come to believe in Jesus Christ, he died in 2010, yet before he died, he did come to a place where he believed that at least there was a God that existed. And, and he says that one of the things that helped him come to this belief was the, the science. There was this, he says, the integrated complexity of the physical universe can only be explained, he said, in terms of an intelligent source. Like There is a voice of God, and He is speaking. He is not silent. The problem is not with His voice, but it's with our ears. And so we see that we could summarize this first part of the story of Samuel and God speaking to him with regard to the sons of Eli as defiant. 
The sons of Eli were defiant. But we come to the second part, because the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, are not the only characters in that story. Now we look at Eli himself. What about Eli? What about this older man who had these sons serving with him in the tabernacle? Did Eli know the Word of God? Well, you already know he did. He had to have known the Word of God because he was the one that spoke to his sons and told them, my sons, this isn't right. He understood why his son's disobedience was so wrong. But even in addition to his knowledge of the Word of God, yes, he knew the law. He knew the law well enough to speak it to his sons, but God did something even more for Eli. God actually sent a prophet to Eli to speak the Word of God to him personally. And what did this prophet say? This prophet said this in chapter 2 and verse 27. There came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Here's the question from the prophet of God, speaking for God, to Eli, this priest who should have been a mediator between God and men, why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling? Here's what he was doing. He was making little, he was scorning the sacrifices that God had commanded, not because he was the one that was taking the pieces of meat out of the pot, but because he was honoring his sons above God. Eli could have said, I didn't take any meat out of the pot. I didn't even touch a woman in the tabernacle. Oh, but Eli, your sons occupied a much higher position than God did in your own mind and heart. You see the problem? The word of the Lord is rare in those days, not because God is not speaking, but because there's a problem with our ears. There's a problem with the listeners. And for Eli, the problem was not defiance. The problem was not a defiant will. The problem was, here it is, a disordered love. A disordered love. Why then, God asks, do you honor your sons above me? You see the importance of order We understand the importance of order on really basic levels. When you build a house, you lay the foundation first, and then you build the roof. You don't put the foundation on top of the roof. That would ruin both the foundation and the roof. There is a certain order inscribed into the logic of things that we must follow. It's the same in relationships. If, if I were to prioritize, I, I love my children, but if I were to prioritize my children above my wife and disorder that relationship, then eventually I would not be able to love my children like I should because my relationship with my wife wouldn't be what it should. You see the importance of, of order? If a person loved his career and, and, and he put his career above his, his relationship with his spouse, with his, his children, or whatever other commitments he has, it, it will eventually ruin his career too. There's a problem with disordered loves. Here, here is, is our problem as human beings. We, we have these, these right desires, but we pervert them. 
We have desires for, for love, for affirmation, for wealth, for recreation, for pleasure, career, and hobbies. But here's the problem. We put things out of order. In other words, idolatry. Taking something that is not God and elevating it above God and treating it as God as if that thing can be the thing that just fills you, satisfies you, makes you happy. And yet God is saying, I am the source of all happiness. This was what Eve's problem, Adam and Eve, in the very first temptation, we go back this, to this because this is, this is a pattern. It's paradigmatic for the rest of these scenarios and these confrontations with God. What was the fundamental lure that the serpent spoke to Eve? It says, oh, you can be like God apart from God. There is some good to be enjoyed as long as you just overstep God's boundary that he has laid for you. There's good outside of God. That is the ultimate lie. That is always going to be the, the draw of sin. When, when, when someone convinces you that you can enjoy some good apart from God, that is, the, that is the lie that will begin the train to all kinds of disaster in your life. It's disordered love. You know what? It can be, it can be the very good things. It's, it's, not, it's not always the nasty and dirty and defiled that brings us down but it can be the pure things put in the wrong place. Is it good for you to want money? That good can become an idol and ruin you. Is it good for you to want to be loved and accepted and affirmed and appreciated? Why else would God allure us with the promise that, that to those faithful servants, he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. But when we make that an idol, it could be warped into a monster that will wrap its tentacles around every part of our life and eventually destroy us. This is what Eli did. This is what the Bible says he did. He had honored, look at verse, get your eyes on it, verse 29 of chapter 2, you have honored your sons above me. For Eli, it was his sons. What is it for you? What has become so important for you that it makes you turn a deaf ear to the Word of God? See, Eli stands for the man of disordered loves. My friends, there is nothing more satisfying than God. There is, nothing, there is nothing that can fill you. There is nothing that can, that can fill the void in your life that you feel so poignantly than, than God and that only is offered through a right relationship with Him through Jesus Christ. For Eli, who is sons, what is it for you? This takes us from the first part of the story dealing with Eli's sons to the second part of the story dealing with Eli himself. The whole question is, why is the word of the Lord rare in those days? To the third and that is Samuel. Samuel. He could have been as young as 12 years old at the time of the events here in chapter 3. And as a servant here in the tabernacle, he was used to uh, elderly Eli calling to him and, and for various needs, perhaps things that he needed even in the middle of the night. And now it is night, the setting of chapter 3, and 
we see that Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow, begun to grow dim, by the way, not referring only to his, spiritual, to his physical sight, but also metaphorically to his spiritual sight. Both Eli and Samuel are lying down in their places. The lamp of God, we read in verse 3, has not yet gone out. And then the Lord calls to Samuel. The silence is broken by this single word. It's a name. Not Hophni. Not Phinehas. Not Eli, but the servant boy. He is being addressed here. And, and his first thought is that Eli must be calling him. It's something he's been used to. So he gets up out of bed and he runs to the bed of Eli and he, and he says, here I am because you called me. And Eli, rousing himself from his slumber, is, is apparently confused. He said, I, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. And the voice comes a second time. Samuel. Samuel gets up, goes to the bedside of Eli and says, here I am. You called me. Eli says, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. This happens a third time. This is a busy night. Samuel, obediently, as he's been trained to, as he should do, he gets up and goes to the only person he, he thinks could be calling him and says, here I am for you called me. And it's only the third time that Eli begins to recognize there's something else going on here. I'd venture to guess that if Eli had been more attuned to the voice of God in his own life, he would have sooner recognized that God was calling to this young man, but it took him the third time to recognize that actually even though the word of the Lord had been rare for him and for his sons, the word of the Lord would not be rare to a boy whose ears were attentive to the word of the Lord. And so he says this when he calls again. Here's what you need to say. Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. I love that. Oh, with all the deafness, with all the noise and the chaos in our hearts and all around us, with the sin of Hophni and Phinehas, with, with the disordered love and therefore the deafness that's going on in the life of Eli, finally there's instruction given to someone that said, to say, listen, your servant is listening. And now the voice comes a fourth time. And the Lord speaks to Samuel. We see this in verse 10. Samuel says, speak for your servant hears. And in verse 11, the Lord speaks. Now, remember we, we said earlier that it is not that the Lord is silent. It is that we are often failing to listen. There is not anything wrong with the voice of the Lord. The problem is with our ears. And here we see finally an example of someone who is devoted Eli's sons, defiant. Eli, disordered. Samuel, devoted. Devoted to hearing the voice of the Lord. It would be easy for us to stop right here and for me to say, all right, here's what you need to do. Just be like Samuel. And yes, there is a sense in which we do need to be like Samuel, but that's not the whole story. 
There's two, there would be two big problems if I told you just be like Samuel. And the first is this. Samuel himself was not a perfect model of listening to the Lord. We, le- we read later on in chapter 8 and verse 4 that the reason or one of the reasons why the people of Israel, after Samuel grew old, wanted a king was because Samuel's own sons did not walk in his ways. Isn't it interesting that Samuel himself replicates the failure of Eli in training his sons to fear the Lord? There's a second reason. Did you listen very carefully during our scripture reading time to what it was that the Lord told Samuel? Most Sunday school lessons on Samuel stop at this point because there is a word of judgment. God himself says, I'm going to tell you something and the ears of everyone who hears this is going to tingle with horror because of it. What was the word of God to Samuel? It was a word of judgment on Eli and his sons for not listening to the word of the Lord. Here is, here's something that we need to grapple with as we read the Scripture. How is it that this boy who was charged to listen and finally hears the word of the Lord when, uh, during a time when the word of the Lord is rare and there are infrequent visions, the word he hears is a word of judgment. What does this point to? And Samuel's own failures, what does it point to? It points to this. We need a perfect prophet. We need someone who can tell us the word of the Lord. And we need a word of mercy and not of judgment. Although Samuel in this story models a devoted heart, he is a signpost for another prophet. A ultimate prophet who will listen to the word of the Lord perfectly and who will not come merely as a God of judgment but also as a God of mercy. That's why we read in the Gospel of John in the New Testament in the beginning, remember in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1, the word of the Lord is rare. The word of the Lord was rare. And now in John chapter 1, it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. This is the incarnate word, Jesus Christ, who comes to us as the perfect prophet, declaring to us God in all his justice, yes, but also in all his mercy. This is the fullest anticipation of the prophet Samuel, pointing to Jesus Christ, who will give us the word of God in all its fullness. You say, I want to hear a word from God. I want God to speak to me. God has spoken to you. I feel so lonely. My life is is chaotic. I have so many anxieties and pressures. God has spoken to you. How does he speak to you? He speaks in a way that is far more sure and memorable than any vision or audible voice you can possibly have. He speaks to you by becoming a person, a human being, coming as a man, living a perfect life, dying a substitutionary death. In other words, a death in the place of sinners so that he can say, your sin is so bad, it took the Son of God to die for it, but you are so loved. What is God saying to you? Just look at who Jesus is. 
the perfect, sinless Son of God who dies the death He didn't deserve so you can live the life you don't deserve. What is the Word of God to you? It is for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. You want a word from God? You have it. It's in Jesus Christ and what He's done for you on the cross. And that word, my friend, is the word for which you crave and desperately need if you've never believed in Jesus as your Savior. The message of Christ is this. You're stained and flawed so deeply, you can't save yourself. That would be bad news if it ended there, but that's not the end of it. That Jesus Christ has died for you. And the wrath of God falls on him. Yes, the wrath of God fell on Eli and his family. But by the grace of God, for those of us who trust in Jesus Christ, the wrath of God falls on his son so that we can be saved. So what do we do? My friend, here's what to do if you've never believed in Jesus Christ, is to trust in him. Just call out to him and cry, cry to him and say, I can't save myself tried to fill myself with so many things that I thought could satisfy me and it's not working. Jesus saves. Now many of you are sitting here and you're nodding in affirmation because you know you've done that. But here's what you need to do. Listen to the Word of God. My friends, you must daily, often open this book and read it to nourish your soul. You cannot expect to have a grasp on truth and a proper understanding of what's going on in your life if you abandon this book. If you do not read your Bible, you must be attentive to the voice of God and make your intake of this book be a part of the rhythm of your life. If you don't, you are going to stray. And as your pastor, I am so concerned and interested that each one of you be making a daily habit of reading the Bible and of coming with that Samuel-like attitude and says, here I am, Lord, speak to me. And if you pray that, He will speak to you. He will speak right into your life. Read the Bible. Here's another thing that's important for us as people who come to this church, those of you who regularly gather here with the people of Trinity Baptist Church, that we have a church in which we are speaking truth into each other's lives. This is what the writer to the Hebrews says in chapter 3. I referred to this earlier, that we are to exhort one another while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's a very real possibility that we be hardened, that is, our sensibilities cease to function because we have come to the point when we think that sin isn't. That's the deceitfulness of sin. Think I'm okay in this. And, and what is the antidote to the deceitfulness of sin? It is the mutual exhortation of the people of God speaking the words of God into each other's lives. We need to be doing that to each other. We need to create a culture of that as a church 
where we have the sort of hearts that are transparent and open to the Word of God so that when another person challenges us, we're ready to receive it and be humble and correct our ways so that we have the courage and humility to speak the word of truth, of God's truth, into other people's lives. That's how we grow. That's how we thrive as a church. This is how we let the word of God have a rich dwelling among us. And this is how growth takes place. This is where revival starts. When people open their lives to the word of God and allow God to speak right to them and be willing to respond. That's what we need to do as a church. It's going to take humility. It's going to take courage. But that is the only antidote to the the hardening that can take place because of the deceitfulness of sin. My friends, God is speaking. He's spoken to you through Jesus Christ. Are we listening? And as we listen, the story of our life can be a story of grace overcoming guilt.